Hi, this is Keith Cutter with EMF Remedy. You are listening to the Reversing Electromagnetic Poisoning podcast. This is episode three. Today we'll be talking about electric fields. We're talking about alternating current electric fields, and we'll talk about where you might be able to find these fields, how you can identify them, how they can be measured, and at the end of the broadcast, we will talk about uh, what type of meters might be appropriate for working with electric fields so that you can get an accurate reading of the intensity in a particular place and time. We will be talking about things that are going to require some context to understand. So there will be a few anecdotes and stories along the way, so buckle in. Electric fields are fundamentally different than what we discussed last time with regard to magnetic fields. Both of them, electric and magnetic fields, are vestiges or um, attributes associated with the electric power grid that we have selected here in the United States and in other parts of the world for distributing electric power into our homes. So unfortunately, this is yet another type, another species of non-native, which means it's not a part of nature, electromagnetic energy that we can find um, in (laughs) the places where most of us live and the places where most of us um, travel and spend time including public places and uh, private businesses and whatnot. It's very hard to escape electric fields. So let's get a feel for how they're different and and where you can find them. So I want to mention from the outset that perhaps we should view the grid, the electric distribution grid, that provides us with our power as a radio station of sorts. And it's playing a song. It's not a very pretty song, but a song nonetheless. And there's probably no place on earth where that song can't be heard with equipment that is accurate enough. So... I'll just plant that seed and we'll we'll proceed ahead and we'll kind of talk about why one might view it in that way. So I mentioned in our first broadcast that I've had a sort of a lifelong interest in wireless communications. I was a nerdy child interested in science um, from an early age. I shared <clears throat> I shared that when I was in high school, I built a transmitter and receiver that could uh, transmit my voice over distance using a reflected beam of sunlight. So that'll give you uh, some perspective on the depths of my ner- nerdiness. And one of the things that I enjoyed doing when I was a child was um, using or playing with what we called in those days walkie-talkies, and the name walkie-talkie, boy, I haven't used, I haven't heard that used in a very long time. 
But what it was meant to connote was the fact that you could actually walk around and talk with somebody at the same time. You see, that was not always part of the human experience. And depending on your age, that's probably an interesting thing to comprehend. But really, it's only been in modern times that we have this ability to communicate with cell phones and whatnot. Anyway, walkie-talkies were uh, using radiation from a relatively lower part of the spectrum, which meant that the, the waves themselves were not as energetic as the higher frequencies that we have now in smartphones, for example. So typically what was being used then was something in what was called the Citizens Band. Isn't that an interesting name? Citizens Band. And the idea was that plain ordinary citizens would have a small allocation of spectrum in the uh, electromagnetic uh, range licensed by the FCC or Federal Communications Commission for private use. So they had some stipulations in there and, and there were only certain frequencies available and it was not to be used for commercial use and the power was restrained. So if I remember correctly, the power uh, maximum radiated power was uh, 250 milliwatts, which would mean one quarter of one watt, quite a bit less than the... Uh, more energetic, and in my opinion, much more dangerous uh, microwave radiation that are used in uh, cell phones and Wi-Fi and baby monitors and whatnot. But that's what we had in those days. It was amplitude modulation. There wasn't a a horrible um, pulsed uh, modulation like we're experiencing right now. And, you know, you you would use these things to talk to your friend or your neighbor um, a block away or something like that. And it was, it was tremendous fun for kids. So I spent a little bit of time. I actually had a base station for the citizens band. And in those days you could have a power level of up to five whole Watts of power, uh, which is really not much considering, uh, current times. But my dad um, was conservative and didn't think five whole watts of power would be safe for a young man. So my base station was one quarter of one watt, the same as a walkie-talkie. And I spent uh, endless hours, you know, listening and talking to different people in different places. And I learned a lot about wireless um, radiation in the process, about antennas, um, about feed lines and whatnot. So later on in life, I oh, um, I should mention that sometimes you could achieve amazing distance with a very little power. And I remember in particular hearing a conversation from two different stations. Now in those days, people obeyed the, the rules of the road, so to speak, and were not using these linear amplifiers they have now, but, you know, staying within the the power out, you know, output, I heard two stations talking, one from California and the other from Hawaii, and I was able to hear them both, and they were both within the, the legal parameters, so that's quite a distance with not very much power. 
So you get a feeling of how little energy, how little of this man-made electromagnetic radiation it takes to transcend um, great distances. So later on, I became licensed by the Federal Communications Commission to have more of a scope of operation on different frequencies, and I could uh, talk on a number of different what were called what we called bands, and um, really translated to a particular assigned mode, frequency, and wavelength. And the testing was rather rigid in those days, uh, in particular compared to what the testing is like nowadays. For example, you had to show a proficiency with Morse code in those days. And I considered myself fortunate because my test involved only um, being able to listen to and interpret the Morse code. I didn't actually have to uh, send Morse code as part of my test, but I managed by God's grace to, to pass that. And, and um, I thought it was fun. I learned a lot about how to build antennas. I could talk to people in far off places. Later on when I became a, a father and I would have my son and a little handheld antenna and we could with a knowledge of where certain satellites were at certain times, we could talk on amateur radio satellites that would pass overhead. And instead of being able to speak a very short distance on low power and a higher frequency, uh, we could talk over a satellite and reach somebody, you know, thousands of miles, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away. So that was very, very interesting as well. And in that hobby, I, I did develop an appreciation for, although I will say that I was not very good at, something they called QRP. And I forgotten what QRP stands for, but it's basically operating on the ridiculous end of very, very tiny amounts of power and trying to get the longest distance possible. So thousands of miles could be accomplished with a an appropriate transmitter with just a handful of AA batteries. And I always thought that that was quite amazing. Now, with regard to the antennas, you know, there are dipole antennas, there are ground plane antennas, there are beam antennas, there are a number of different types of antennas that can be used, and many of them are very, very simple to make. One of the most simple antennas is called a long wire. <laughs> and in a simpler form, you just take a long piece of wire, and long, and how long long is, is up to you. And you might string it along a fence, or you might put it up in a bunch of trees in your yard, or you might string the piece of wire up in a tree and then into the next tree and the next tree and try to get something, you know, even longer. And you could get some amazing reception and you could, you could even, you know, transmit far over distances. So with this kind of a 
context. And remember, we're going to be talking about electric fields. And I've mentioned the thought that the grid and the power-generating infrastructure is kind of like a radio station. So I have some questions. So what is your opinion? What is more sensitive as a receiver? Is it a radio built by human hands to receive a QRP broadcast? Or is it, is it a person? Have you considered that? Do you know that we are designed to, to pick up certain signals from our environment? Have you heard of the Schumann resonance? The Schumann resonance is the home frequency of the earth itself. And it is a very, very low frequency. It's below the frequency of our power system, 7.83 cycles per second. And it doesn't alternate positive to negative, it just increases and decreases. And we seem to be built to require that for our internal timing. And we seem to be built to be able to use the electromagnetic radiation from the sun, light itself, to produce vitamin D in the ultraviolet band or frequency range. And with more than 40% of the energy coming from the sun in the infrared band or frequency range, meaning below Red. It is not something we can see with our eyes, but we are built to be able to um, benefit from those frequencies. So I'll ask again, what do you think is a more sensitive receiver, a radio or a person? How good an antenna is the grid that's my next question for you. I talked about in the ham radio hobby, you learn how to make antennas. There are many types. One of them is simply a long piece of wire. Can you think of anything with regard to the grid that reminds you of a long wire? Like the endless miles of transmission and distribution lines that we see above the ground and the miles below the earth that we can't see. How good an antenna would the wires in an average house be? That's my next question. And if you've ever wired a house, you'll know... <laughs> There's a lot of wire involved. I mean, you go through um, spools and spools of wire, wiring everything in a house. Every single branch circuit in the house has to run all the way back to the main electric panel and then has to be able to, to 
It's run to all the lights, all the light switches, all the electrical outlets. So if you've ever seen a house being built without the drywall up, but the electrical wiring in, you, you develop a real appreciation and understanding for how many long pieces of wire there are in a house, which brings up back to the question, how good an antenna are these long wires in the average house? Do we, do we receive communications at the frequency range of 60 hertz? So, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave these questions for now. In a future podcast, after we've finished talking about magnetic fields, electric fields, dirty electricity, and RF radiation, I want to come back at a future broadcast and I want to talk about, so what could the possible interactions be with people? But in this podcast, I am speaking to people who already know. They're already aware that electromagnetic radiation has impacted their life greatly, and they're ready to, to take action based upon that. So the electric grid ostensibly developed to effectively transport power from the point of uh, generation to the point of use. The fact of the matter is that any signal which passes through a wire provides the basis for broadcasting. When you have a wire and you want to get it, get your signal out, you need, when you have a radio and you want to get your signal out, you have to attach it, attach it to a wire of some sort and uh, lead, lead to an antenna of some sort to get that out. The electric fields, fundamentally different than the magnetic fields, they come from the electric grid. We are able to easily measure with appropriate equipment an electric field. We can measure close to a transmission line. Those are those great big high tension lines, if you will. And we can easily see uh, electric fields emanating from them. We can measure electric fields. And by the way, an electric field meter does not measure, in general, magnetic fields. And magnetic field meters, in general, don't measure electric fields, at least not at the same time. So we can use the electric field meter and know that we're not getting, we're not reading the, elect the magnetic field. We see that on these power lines, and we also see it in our homes. In fact, as you get closer to the wiring in the walls of a house, you'll see the intensity of the electric field radiation increase. So like other forms of electromagnetic fields, there is this characteristic of distance versus intensity. The closer you get, the more intensity you'll measure. The further away, the lower the intensity, 
and we will definitely be talking about that more. Here's the fundamental distinction between electric fields and magnetic fields. They're different species, but the magnetic field we discussed in the last broadcast is proportional to how big a load in the electric appliance or appliances in a house or a city that will determine the relative magnetic field. The electric field is completely different. You can have everything in the house or everything in the city turned on at the same time and the electric fields won't increase. Electric fields are proportional to voltage, not current. So when you have the electricity in your home turned on and nothing whatsoever is connected, nothing is plugged in, not a light turned on, you know from the last discussion we had on magnetic fields that the magnetic fields will be at zero. With electric fields, your, mag- your electric fields in your home will be at their maximum. So very different from the magnetic field. If electricity is present, the electric field is present, whether or not that electricity is being used or not. And when I say it's proportional to voltage, here's what I'm talking about. Imagine that you could be 10 feet away from the wiring in your walls, 10 feet away from a distribution line, which you would not want to be that close, and 10 feet away from an electrical transmission line, a high-tension line. And when you measure the electric fields the electric field in your home would be the smallest, the distribution line would be the next largest, and the largest of all would be the transmission line. And again, of course, you would never want to get that close to, you know, the live high-voltage lines. But electricity, when it's transported over distance, whether in a transmission line or a distribution line, is at a higher voltage than the electricity in your home. And depending on whether it's a transmission line or a distribution line, and even within distribution lines, you can have different voltages. The higher the voltage, the higher the electric field will be. The implications here, and of course, we'll talk about this more in detail at another time, is that When you're looking for a place to live as somebody who is sensitive, you don't want to be near electrical transmission or distribution lines whatsoever. You know, if you can see them on the horizon, that's maybe far enough away. Maybe not. Um, With regard to electricity in your home, it presents a challenge because, as I've said, if you have electricity, even if you're not using it, that those fields are at their maximum. When I was 
very sick and I, I kind of talked about my story in episode one or a little bit of my story in episode one. Um, one of the things that we had to do to survive was when we lived in an off-grid home, nowhere near the electric grid, I had to turn the power off. And by doing that, the electric fields actually went down to zero in the house. When I lived for a period of time before we were building our shielded home, it was connected to the grid, but we kept the main electric panel switched off, and even so, there was still some residual uh, electric fields in the home. So we will definitely revisit this topic in later podcasts when we're talking about appropriate places to live for people who are sensitive. Let's talk about um, measurement. So how would you measure an electric field? So there are two accepted methods for measuring an electric field. The first one that I want to talk to is called body voltage. And, you know, I had asked the question earlier on whether we are capable of receiving this, you know, in the United States, 60 hertz communication that's being broadcast in our environment. Are we capable of receiving that in our bodies? And the answer to that is yes, demonstrably so, and it's rather easy. If you're a handy type of a person and you own a voltmeter, you can, in an afternoon, create your own body voltage meter. And when I was uh, brand new at this and had little resources, that's what I did. I took a piece of copper water pipe and I knew how to do silver soldering like you would do when you're making jewelry. So I turned one of the electrodes in my voltmeter into, uh, I cut the test lead and I soldered it onto this little six inch piece of copper water pipe. And that I would hold in my hand while I took the other test lead from the voltmeter and I would attach it to a ground rod that I had placed in the ground. And I am not talking about using the ground rod in your electric system. I realize, of course, that homes that are on the grid have a ground rod, but that's for the electrical ground. That's not what I'm talking about here. So believe it or not, by doing that, whether you have an analog meter or whether you have a digital meter, as long as it's a good enough quality meter to measure millivolts, which are one thousandth of one volt, as long as you have a good enough meter to measure milliwatts, you can use this technique and you can measure something called the capacitative coupling. And that's uh, sort of a physical phenomenon that describes the degree to which the human body couples with this transmission being sent out at 60 hertz or in other places in the world, 50 hertz. 
works equally well. And what you find is the human body couples very effectively in this frequency range. And you can actually read a voltage depending on how close or far you are from the source of an electric field. So I was able to measure when I, when I converted one of my voltmeters to this use, it was a good quality meter. So it was capable of measuring in millivolts. Of course, you want to select direct current. Um, ah, no, well, let me think about that for a moment. No, no, you're looking for uh, alternating current. Anyway, you connect the voltmeter and you are able to look at that meter and you'll either see the needle move and you'll get a reading that way or you'll see the digital display indicate how many millivolts you are communicating between your body and the ground through the meter. And in that off-grid home that I was living in, when I had the power system on in that particular house, it was a rather small house, so because the walls were close, because the rooms were small, you were more encased by the electric wiring. I had 3,000 millivolts potential between my body and the earth where there should be zero and 3000 that's a lot that's that's three whole volts of electricity so it's perfectly acceptable to use a body voltage meter for measurement of electric fields there are also purpose-built meters that you can purchase for uh, measuring electric fields. And I would go, you know, with either a body voltage meter or a three-axis electric field meter. I would not bother with a single axis because, as we discussed in the last broadcast, the single axis require you to take three separate measurements in each time and place, and then a mathematical formula to derive the actual exposure in that area. And one more thing with an um, electric field meter that isn't always the same with the magnetic field meter, but you would have to have the meter, the, the single axis meter connected to a ground rod in the earth, which makes it rather inconvenient. So body voltage meter or three axis electric field meter would be my recommendation. One is very inexpensive. Is uh, The other is more expensive. Interestingly, the meter that I recommended last time, not that you need, but if you wanted a higher end meter, that particular meter I talked about last time with magnetic fields has a mode for magnetic and a mode for electric and a third mode for body voltage 
Um, so you can use that same meter if you wanted to for electric field. So let's talk about the let's talk about all the pros and cons. A body voltage meter. The pros are that it's cheap. It's easy to operate, although inconvenient. And we'll talk about inconvenient with the cons. Um, and maybe one more pro is that it's more personal. And what I mean by that is when I am performing an assessment for a client and if a body voltage meter is called for, I'll have the client be the one who holds the body voltage device because his or her reading will be different than mine. And my wife often accompanies me and helps me in my work. And her body voltage will be different than mine and the client's and so on. And children will have a different body voltage and bigger people and smaller people and people who have more water, you know, more hydrated tissues, etc. So it's, it's more personal, I guess, for a body voltage meter. That's, um, that's a pro. In other words, as a sensitive individual, if you're willing to take the time and energy to set up a body voltage meter, you can learn your personal um, comfort zone with regard to electric field exposure. And you can measure it in the bed you'll be sleeping in and the place you'll be um, spending a lot of time and get those exact measurements and whatnot. So the cons with a body voltage meter include the fact that it's inconvenient. So you've got to know how to make uh, an electrode. You've got to go hammer the electrode in the appropriate place in the ground. You have to do that in a place where you're not running the risk of bumping into an electric wire or anything else um, that would be inconvenient to run into a water pipe or something. And the frequency range is a question. Well, what do I mean by that? I've mentioned a few times that the frequency of the power in the United States is 60 hertz, 60 cycles per second. In other parts of the world, the frequency range is 50, usually 50 hertz. And that is the frequency range that voltmeters are certainly listening to. So since a body voltage meter is a converted electrical meter, you'll definitely get a good reading with regard to the capacitative coupling at 60 hertz. However, um, there are electric fields at other frequencies, and we'll talk about that in our next broadcast when we look at the phenomenon of dirty electricity. But not all frequencies which are capable of coupling with the human body are at 60 hertz. So a con with regard to a body voltage meter is 
it becomes a question as to whether they can really, how useful they are for frequencies other than 60 hertz or other than being in the neighborhood of 60 hertz. And let's look at a three-axis electric field meter. First of all, much more convenient. So let's imagine you're a sensitive individual. You are actually able to leave your home because some are not able to leave their home. And if you are a sensitive individual and you're still able to do that, that is a blessing. But understand, there are others who are not yet able to do that. Assuming you're able to leave your home, you want to go someplace because you long for um, going out to a restaurant or to, in my case, church or, you know, whatever it may be to visit a friend. But you'll need to make a quick assessment as to whether the place that you're going is a safe place for you. So you're going to want a quick read on what are the magnetic fields, electric fields, and RF fields at a minimum. And once you've assessed that, you can feel, you can relax, and you can feel comfortable where you are. Or alternatively, you might know that, gee, this is only, I can only, I can only visit for five minutes and then I better go kind of a thing. But with the body voltage meter, you know, if you're if you're visiting a public park or if you're visiting a, a friend's house or whatever, you're going to have to go place that um, rod, that ground rod in the ground, and you're going to have to attach to that. You're going to have to run wire into the place where you're going to be spending time, and you get the idea. Less convenient. With a, a proper three-axis electric field meter, you can pull the meter out, and yes, that might attract a little bit of attention, but... Once you know what you're doing, you can quickly assess the um, electric fields and be on to the next assessment that you need to make. So infinitely more convenient. And I mentioned about, you know, knowing what your body voltage needs to be in a certain place. You can also correlate. If you have a three-axis electric field meter, you can know where you want to be with regard to electric field exposure. So be able to then quickly with the three axis meter, be able to measure that. So it is more objective. And, and by that, here's what I mean. You can make a, a physical um, objective determination of how many volts per meter of electric field radiation do I have man-made radiation do I have in this particular place at this point in time? It's an objective measurement. And if you have a good meter, um, you can be very confident in that being accurate. The frequency range is something that can be much greater with a uh, electric field meter, much broader frequency range. So the one that I use in my professional work, I believe goes all the way down to 16 hertz, if I'm not mistaken, and it goes up to 1 million, uh, which captures everything from subways in Europe and that type of power um, through the power distribution system 
into um, the frequencies that are sometimes generated uh, as a part of dirty electricity and and well beyond that. So you can have a much greater uh, frequency range and be assured of accuracy with the uh, three-axis meter. The big downside, of course, is uh, it's very expensive. Very expensive for the uh, three-axis electric field meter. Um, although the only one I can really recommend is the same one I did for magnetic fields, so you at least have that advantage of being able to do both electric and magnetic fields at the same time. And I've already mentioned it has the body voltage um, feature as well. Um, so anyway, there is an expense that's almost $2,000. It's, uh, what is it, $1,925 for that particular meter. And the last con for a three-axis electric field meter is the learning curve. So if I were to hand you right now my um, electric field meter and I were to ask you to take an electric field reading, uh, there are a lot of switches. <laughs> there are a lot of switches on that meter. And you have to choose. You have to know what position those switches need to be in in order to take an appropriate reading. And that takes more effort than you might think to learn. Once you learn, it's no problem. You'll know exactly what to do to put it in magnetic field mode, electric field mode, to put it in body voltage mode, to put it in data recording mode, you know, whatever you want to do, you'll be able to do that. But not right out of the box. It's something that has to be uh, learned. And I need to mention that as a, as a con for deciding on that type of a meter. So anyway, those are the two different types of electric field measurements that I would recommend. Uh, there are single axis electric field meters available. Um, I, I don't think they're really practical. So that's just, that's just not one I would, I would recommend. So two choices with regard to uh, electric field meters. You can go with the body voltage meter, and they're relatively inexpensive. You can buy them um, in a number of different places. What is important is that the uh, voltmeter that underlies the body voltage meter be accurate in the millivolt range. So I, fairly, I feel confident recommending the body voltage kit that Safe Living Technologies um, is selling on their website today. The price they had listed was $160 for the, the entire kit. And if you want to look elsewhere, just make sure that the meter underlying that body voltage kit um, is accurate within the millivolt range. Uh, the other option is the NFA 1000. And that product is in the professional series of gigahertz meters. There is only one authorized distributor in all of North America, and that is Safe Living Technologies. And you can do business with them online if you're able at safelivingtechnologies.com. Uh, 
or uh, by telephone 888-814-2425. Again, 888-814-2425. And I'm sure they'll they'll take good care of you. I'll, oh, also, if you'd like, you're welcome to use the discount code REMEDY5. That's REMEDY spelled R-E-M-E-D-Y-5. And they will give you an additional 5% discount on these products. They, I say additional because sometimes they run seasonal sales. Um, so anyway, additional 5% if you like. I am an affiliate for Safe Living Technologies. And I'd like to make the case for why you might want to invest in these meters. And I think it's probably becoming obvious as we go forward in time. The different species of electric energies, man-made electromagnetic fields, they're each quite separate. They each have to be measured separately. And my thesis, if you will, is they're all bad. And I believe that's supported by, by the research as well. So I encourage people who are sensitive, who know that they've been damaged um, by man-made EMF to develop a certain level of proficiency, to, to have the ability to check out a place where they're going to spend some time and to determine whether that place is um, going to be comfortable for them to spend, you know, how much time there. And it has to do not just with RF, which gains all of the attention these days, although RF radiation is certainly important. It has to do with magnetic fields, electric fields, and even dirty electricity. So um, my thought would be it would be great uh, for folks who are sensitive to have not only the right equipment to make an accurate assessment, but the knowledge of how to do that and how to do it expeditiously for a place where you're going to spend a little time or, you know, if you don't have a permanent home and you're needing to move around the ability to, uh, to make an evaluation of a, a place that you're going to spend the night. So that's the idea there. And I, I really get the fact that it is an investment, particularly if you are in that category of not having a permanent home and you're moving around I realize um, what an investment that these meters can be. I have been blessed with a career where I made enough money that I could buy things without a whole lot of forethought or planning. And I've also lived through this um, poisoning that I've suffered with man-made EMF through a long season where we didn't have money. <laughs> I not only... Um, didn't have any money. I had no ability to make money. I had no ability to hold a job where there was, a, you know, any kind of an infrastructure in place, an electrical infrastructure in place. So I get it. I, I absolutely understand. Um, and if you can't afford meters at all, I certainly understand that. And in a future broadcast, if there is interest, I would like to take people through a... Um, 
in any space that you go into and inhabit, where can you find the least amount of EMF in that area? So look forward to that in the future. Um, but if you are able to acquire a good set of meters, I think that would be in, um, in your best interest. So a quick review of where we've been today. We, we've talked about the electrical infrastructure that is used for the distribution of power generated elsewhere to be, be in the home. And the baggage that comes along with that is exposure to some very unnatural electromagnetic fields. We talked about magnetic fields last time, and we're talking about electric fields today. We gave an analogy of a radio station transmitting a song, if you will, and asked to think about that in terms of our electric grid, because there is a song, it's not very lovely, it's one tone only, and um, it is distributed all over this world. And I've made the assertion that there's probably nowhere you could go with a sensitive enough receiver that you wouldn't hear that buzzing sound associated with our power system. And it is not the sound that causes the damage, but that it is an electromagnetic field. And so we've, we've kind of talked through how very little power it takes to transmit a communication from here to there, hundreds or even thousands of miles with a small handful of AA batteries. And look what power we're pumping into the grid. And we need to think about, you know, how loud that signal is at a cellular level, really, within our own bodies. So that's kind of been the message today. Takeaways that I just want to reiterate, important takeaways are the higher the voltage, the greater the intensity of the electric field. So if you're near high voltage lines or transmission lines, um, that might not be comfortable for you as a sensitive person. And in fact, even in your own home, proximity plays a key role. If your power is on, your electric fields are at their maximum in an ordinary home. Um, it, by the way, if you design uh, an EMF home from the ground up, you can largely take care of the electric fields. And we can talk about how that's done in the future. But in an ordinary home that's not made uh, with the thought of lowering exposure to electromagnetic fields, if that power is on in that house, you're going to have a body voltage, you're going to have a capacitative coupling in the presence of those electric fields. So those are some things to, to keep in mind. And I am really looking forward to our next broadcast. We're going to be talking about something called dirty electricity. And I have to be honest with you. I thought that name was just the acme of foolishness. Um, when I first heard it and I first got involved in this, um, in this area. But um, 
I have come to realize that it is, it perhaps has a better name. Um, and maybe I only think that because of my um, background in technology, but there is a well-known profession really uh, for an engineer to be involved in, and that is electromagnetic interference. And an EMI, or electromagnetic interference, an EMI engineer works at a company to help them develop products with a minimum EMI for other devices. That's number one. So that it doesn't interfere with other devices or even other circuits nearby. Or they develop products that are designed to be robust in the presence of EMI from some other device in the local area. And yeah, just, I mean, that is a, it is a good course of study for an electrical engineer. It's a specialty, uh, high-tech companies and others who develop electronics and even some electrical devices are well-versed in this. And the irony is, with regard to EMI, we kind of have this t- cognitive dissonance. You know, we know the body is electric, right? There's a whole book that talks about that by Becker. The heart, certainly, and the brain are noticeably electrical in nature. And yet, no thought is given to electromagnetic interference in the heart and in the brain. And that's really... A better name for dirty electricity is electromagnetic interference. So we're going to talk in detail about that next time. I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate the time that you've spent with us today, and we'll see you tomorrow. This is Keith Cutter with EMF Remedy, and you've been listening to the Reversing Electromagnetic Poisoning podcast. See you next time.